Welcome, everybody. This year has brought us some bizarre twists and turns, and it was largely due to this whirlwind that Reason to Panic was created. We've covered topics ranging from fatbergs in the Monster of Whitechapel to cyber attacks in hospital attack of horrible implications, and we've laughed along the way. Generally, our intent is to illustrate that anything, when highly focused on or taken out of context, can provide a reason to panic. But today's episode gets a little more real and a lot closer to home. I want you to consider what it would be like to be silenced. I'm not talking a paralysis of your vocal cords, but rather an asphyxiation of your ability to protect your beliefs and viewpoints. What would life be like if you were unable to speak out against policies or laws that go completely against your moral compass? Our founding fathers created a democratic republic with the intent to protect the voices of anyone willing to participate in the discussion. They did not intend for everyone to get their way all of the time, but for people to at least have that chance. A huge part of what they gave us to protect this chance was the Electoral College. What would happen if that were to go away? Welcome to Reason to Panic, the only podcast out there for the worried mind. We give you a reason to panic each week, so you never have to worry about running out of reasons to panic. All right, as always, I am joined by my phenomenal co-hosts. Uh, Eli always says that we're the best money can buy, and yet I still haven't received a check, but I'm waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> Eli Bowman and Randall Floyd. Gentlemen, how are we doing this morning? Doing great. Feeling good. Thanks for uh, thanks for that. That was a great introduction. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I felt that I, I should probably put a little bit more focus since, you know, this one is a, a little bit more, uh, we'll call it sacred, I guess. So um, there it is. Randall, uh, are, you, are you with us? How are you doing? I am with us, and I'm doing good. I'm stuffed full of pancakes and yum, ready yum. to go. So <laughs> let's get this thing going. All right. Is there a be- is there a better pre pre podcast meal than pancakes? It just feels right, doesn't it? Well, the last week I haven't found one. <laughs> I, I'm my wife's pregnant. That's all she can eat for breakfast. So that's what we're eating. <laughs> well, Randall and I are still in the same place. He's he's still parked right next to me. And I'm a little frustrated that Eli is, is talking about us getting paid, and you're over there eating pancakes every morning, and you haven't let me know. <laughs> you busted, Randall. Consider busted. yourself a prize. No, but I'm glad. You know, it, we're so used to doing humor and satire. Um, you know, we we sprinkle in a little bit of serious, but but really only every once in a while. And I'm really I'm li- looking forward to this episode because I think it's very timely, given given where we are right now. Um, and, and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Well, and I'm particularly looking forward to it because you're about to hear a new voice today. And this man is a friend of mine, and I've had the opportunity to speak with him and get to know him um, after working in, in several education and leadership conferences. Our guest is a Navy veteran, president of the Constitution Association, an award-winning blogger, a radio host, author, public speaker, an outspoken proponent for the spread of constitutional literacy and patriotic advocacy. And you may recognize his voice as a guest on Fox shows such as Hannity. I bring you my friend, Douglas Gibbs. Douglas, are you with us this morning? Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We're glad that you were able to join us on our little corner of the podcast universe. Um, the reason that I brought to, I, I thought to bring Douglas on this morning is because, like I said, his, his, uh, Resume is phenomenal. 
as somebody that knows what he's talking about as we start poking around in founding fathers constitution what they set up um, why it still matters today it's not some irrelevant outdated document so um, i just wanted to spend a little bit of time and douglas maybe if you could l let's just give a, a like a 30 second synopsis what is the electoral college why was it created and why is it important Okay, maybe that'll take like 90 seconds, but, you know, go, go for it. Maybe give us your, your thoughts on, on the Electoral College. Well, the Electoral College uh, ties into the Constitution because the Constitution itself was designed to be an appropriate distribution of power. And when we talk about an appropriate distribution of power, we're not just talking uh, power in government, but we're also talking voting power. Our system was not designed to be a democracy. It was designed to be a republic. And so there are mechanisms in place to protect against the tyranny of the majority. And the Electoral College is a compromise that was a approach that would uh, distribute the voting powers in such a way that it not only uh, protected us against democracy, but uh, enabled the more rural states to have a larger voice when it came to uh, the election of the commander in chief slash president of the United States. So the Electoral College is what my kids wish they had when I've got the squeaky wheel child and the one that only speaks up every once in a while. It's to kind of balance that out. <laughs> well, you know, the Electoral College makes uh, Iowa and New Hampshire matter. Uh, without the Electoral College, uh, they wouldn't matter. Um, and we can get into that a little bit later because I know you want to explore that possibility. But uh, you got to remember at the time, there were large concerns over the states with larger populations versus the states with uh, lesser populations, as well as uh, other issues such as slavery at the time. Right. Yeah, I, Douglas, thanks. Thanks for joining us. This is Eli. Um, <clears throat> the that, that brings up this question I have. And and, I, and I've been wondering, I've, I've been seeing on social media a lot this, um, you know, fr from from those who advocate for the abolition of the Electoral College. They uh, they say land doesn't vote. People do. And I seem to see this argument a lot. Uh, against the electoral college, and they'll show a map that you know that has all this red on it because all the, all of these counties have gone Republican, but then the big cities are blue, and some of the surrounding counties there. Um, how do you rebut that? I mean, it, it doesn't seem that, you know that argument. You know, land doesn't vote; people do. It it, it doesn't. It appears to be rooted in emotion and not so much in um, in the Constitution. So, what, what's what's a good way to respond to that type of argument? You know, it's not a quick and short answer normally, but the uh, argument is, first of all, we are we're supposed to be a republic, not a democracy. In a democracy, Thomas Jefferson called it a uh, tyranny of the majority where 51 percent can vote away the rights of the other 49 percent. And that mm, usually yeah. catches people's attention right there. Uh, when it comes to uh, someone like James Madison, he said that democracies are short in their lives and violent in their deaths. And. The example I like to use is I remember when the Ferguson riots were going on in Missouri and the camera was spanning across the uh, scene and there was fires in the background and you could hear gunshots and all this is going on. And then this young man comes running up to the camera and he screams, this is what democracy looks like. And I nodded my head and said, yep, you're right. That's exactly what democracy looks like. Mob rule. And the idea here is to protect us against democracy. 
The problem is the argument about democracy in favor of it has been so instilled into our system, so embedded right. that we automatically think will of the people, you know, the common good and all these other terms that have been used to uh, promote such an idea. And I'm not saying that the voice of the people is not important, but that the voice of the people is only supposed to be a part of the overall uh, scheme of things. And when you give too much power to any one thing, then you run the risk of tyranny. If the president has too much power, there could be tyranny. If Congress has too much power, if the states have too much power, if the federal government has too much power, if the judges have too much power, which they do, uh, and if the people have too much power. So it comes back to what I said at the very beginning is a proper distribution of power. The average layman has trouble digesting that. But if someone is willing to think a little reasonably and think a little bit about the larger picture, they yeah. begin to understand the uh, dynamic there. And once again, uh, when when it comes to uh, really getting to somebody to think about this too, uh, I love to use another quote and this quote is by Winston Churchill, who loved our system of being a Republican, not a democracy. And uh, Winston Churchill once said that the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. <laughs> yeah, it seems apt today. It really kind of does. <laughs> yes, it does. So I've got a question then. And this has more to do because I, I, I envision a place where um, you can still have uh, something similar to the Electoral College and yet not actually have electorates voting. And you could just set up a point system where the states gets points um, based on, you know, whatever, a similar setup to the electoral college as it is now, but just, just simply eliminating the electorates. So what, what, what is the point of the electorates? Like, why the heck are they there in the first place? Because it seems like it's kind of a way to bypass maybe the, the ignorant, the, the unlearned people at the time, at the beginning when the country was first created. Like, I, I don't even understand necessarily why electorate, the electoral votes themselves need to be relevant today and why we can't just set up a point system instead. Uh, actually, the question should be, why is the voting public involved? Uh, and now you're really confused, so let me clarify. Uh, when the electoral college was first created, and understand the words electoral college really didn't uh, come into play until the late 1820s, early 1830s. It wasn't called that. Uh, but originally, the system that we had, when it came to the federal government, the only office in the federal government that the people voted for was members of the House of Representatives period. The electors uh, were appointed by the state legislatures, so we indirectly voted for them. In other words, people we half of the people we voted for voted appointed the electors. Uh, back then, we voted for the assembly uh, or uh, House of Representatives of your state, but not the state Senate. There's a whole different story there. Uh, and then the electors voted independently. They were the they were the election, and it was a way to number one protect us against <clears throat> voter fraud, and secondly to give the people a more active role in the elections. And now, one might ask, well, if the people aren't voting, then what other role could they possibly have? It was the people's responsibility to campaign for their candidates and convince the elector to vote for their guy. 
And let me tell you, uh, prior to the election, the elector was probably the most popular guy in town uh, because everybody was wanting to convince him to vote for their person. The people did not vote. That did not happen until after 1828, and it was encouraged, and the Electoral College was changed uh, really by the urgings of President Andrew Jackson, might I remind you, the father of the Democratic Party. He believed in pure democracy, and he wanted to alter the Electoral College to be less of a Republican form of system of government into a more democratic form. And uh, it was also his idea that it should be winner takes all with these states. It used to be, you know, you might have three candidates for president and your state might have 10 electoral votes and three might vote for one guy, four might vote for another guy, and three might vote for a different guy. And those electoral votes right. would go in that direction. The cities tended to vote for the bigger government guys. The rural areas, electors tended to vote for the uh, lower, uh, smaller government guys. And, and that was the mechanism that was a place to protect against uh, the commander-in-chief slash president uh, being voted in a purely democratic manner. Um, so really the electors are the most important part uh, if you look at it from the founding fathers' point of view. Uh, they were trying to protect against the people's vote. I, f I feel like that sort of has kind of remained the same. I, mean, I think we're, th we're seeing it in the r rural areas. It's pretty typical for the more conservative candidates to uh, and nominees to, to get those votes. Um, I, I, I have a question about, um, and, and this is, of course, related, but it's a little bit of a pivot. The Constitution is designed to be able to be amended and changed. Um, and, and we've seen that happen repeatedly throughout history. You know, some, some people believe in the changes, some people disagree with the changes. In your opinion, Douglas, what have, what have we gotten right? What, what amendments, what changes to the Constitution have been right on the money and, and which ones have, been, have, you know, have led to a more dangerous, uh, 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 what's the word, um, uh, uh, an unsafe uh, road that we're going down? Well, you know, the different amendments have uh, appeals or lack thereof for different reasons. I think my favorite amendment is the 11th Amendment because the 11th Amendment uh, was designed to slap the courts down a little bit, take away some of their power. And I'm not a fan of the courts. and I'm not a fan of what they've become. Uh, and I'll uh, hopefully have the opportunity to discuss them a little bit later. Uh, I think one of the most important amendments in the sense of understanding the structure of our system and what it takes to protect it is the First Amendment, because in the First Amendment, five rights are enumerated. Uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and the freedom to petition the government for redress of grievances. And the way I like to explain it is that is the template for uh, maintaining our republic or keeping our republic. Uh, in other words, remember those five, religion, speech, press, assembly, petition. In other words, pray about it, talk about it, write about it, assemble or gather about it, and be activists about it. So it gives us the template of what we're supposed to do to maintain the republic. Of course, if that doesn't work, then the Second Amendment comes riding in right behind it. Uh, All right, loud and clear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, my least favorite is the 17th Amendment because it was probably one of the loudest 
and nastiest uh, ones when it comes to dismantling our republic and moving us towards democracy. And I, I tell people our biggest problem is democracy. If we were to stop democracy's march through our country, we would stop these problems. If we were to go back to being a, a pure constitutional republic as we began, 90% of our problems would go away. And I'll give you another quote about democracy. I gave you three so far, uh, Jefferson, Madison, and Winston Churchill. Let me give you another one. It's by a guy named Karl Marx. Karl Marx said that democracy is the road to socialism. Wow. Well, wow. No, no, uh, not hiding anything there. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so democracy can be very dangerous. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have any democracy. And the people's voice is very loud. Remember, I told you earlier that the only democratically elected office in the beginning was the House of Representatives. But when it comes to the House of Representatives, it has the most powerful voice of all because the House has a, a, an authority and a power that no other part of the federal government has, the power of the purse strings. So if the people didn't like what was going on, they could cut off funding. No, no money, no war, no money, no whatever else is bothering the people. So while the people only had that one democratically elected office, that office, the House of Representatives, in my opinion, originally was the most powerful of all of them. Right. And so, then good old 1913 had, had to have been one of the best years. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, right smack <laughs> dab. kidding. <laughs> well, it was right smack dab in the middle of a period called the Progressive Era. Surprised? <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, no, so uh, for the audience, 1913, 16th Amendment brought you the IRS, 17th Amendment changed the Senate from the senators being appointed by the state state uh, legislatures to being democratically voted in. And of course, uh, on December 23rd, right before Christmas, while nobody was looking, sneaking it in the back door, the Federal Reserve. So then is, is that, just for our listeners, is that the hinge point that we can look at where America... And I know that there's not going to be just one, right? But is this one like the big hinge point where America shifted in a very fundamental way from what was originally instituted to what's allowed for some of the political climate now, some of the things that are going on now? Was was that 1913? I would say it was the fourth one uh, that were major hinge points. There's many of them, many hinge points, but that was the fourth. Uh, the first one would be uh, Marbury versus Madison in 1803, which changed the courts to allow them to do what's called judicial review. In other words, they, be, they went from applying the law to interpreting the law. The way I like to tell that story, uh, my wife was born in Mexico. If I want to talk to my mother-in-law who speaks only Spanish and I speak only English, I use my wife as an interpreter. I say something in English, my wife tells her in Spanish. She says something in Spanish to my wife, she tells me in English, and I believe her even though it doesn't match the look on my mother-in-law's face. So who has the real power in that conversation? The interpreter. The moment the judges made themselves the interpreters of the law and the interpreters of the Constitution, they get gained all the power. The second hinge point would be John Marshall's nine different rulings during his 36-year reign as Chief Justice of the United States, uh, which uh, pushed what's called federal supremacy, this idea that the federal government is supreme in all cases, no matter what, which the Constitution does not say that at all. The uh, federal uh, government's only uh, supreme on the issues that it has been authorized to be supreme on. Uh, the states have their own issues also that they're supposed to be supreme on. Uh, right. The fourth being 1913. The third is the interesting one. 
the war between the states. The war between the states changed the United States from the United States are to the United States is, made us more nationalistic and less a federation of states with autonomous states that handle their own domestic issues and the federal government only handled the external issues or those uh, that created a, uh, a, a dispute between the states or something like that. Um, National Treasure, remember uh, Nicolas Cage, Ben Gates' character, and he actually says that in the movie, I was shocked because Hollywood got it right. He says, well, the, during the, you know, after the Civil War, I don't call it that, it's a war between the states, but he says after the Civil War, the United States became the United States is rather than the United States are. And I was stunned. My jaw hit the ground. I'm sure that the shattering of my jaw could be heard throughout the theater. <laughs> but uh, I, I couldn't believe it. Hollywood got something right. But uh, but and, and of those four major hinge points, I think uh, bef- other than 1913, while 1913 was huge, I think Marbury versus Madison in 1803 and the war between the states where we went from the United States are the United States is are actually the two majors that really uh, sent us in a tailspin. Well, let's use that then as a segue to kind of come back to our, our original conversation. With with what's going on right here, 2020, are we looking at, are, are we on the, the, the precipice of a fifth hinge point with everything that uh, that's going on and what people are demanding right now? Absolutely. We Well, let me put it this way. They've been, dis- when I say they, uh, whoever the anti-constitutional forces are out there, it's not really a left or a right or a liberal or conservative. It's those who uh, find uh, constitutional principles, liberty, uh, individualism, and uh, you know a free market and so on and so forth uh, as an offense to them, and they stand against it. Uh, so when I say they, that's who I'm talking about. And they have done everything they can over the last 240 years to dismantle the republic. And the Electoral College, although it's been changed quite a bit and without amendment, so really the original Electoral College technically still exists if we want to go back to it, uh, that is the last, aside from the states ratifying uh amendments, the Electoral College is really the last vestige of what we are when it comes to being a republic. We lose the Electoral College, and in my opinion, we're done, or at least we're done for a very long time. Uh, The only way to bring it back if we lose our Electoral College will be a violent revolution, and that's an unfortunate thing. Because Thomas Jefferson talked about this, that tyranny arises out of population centers. Historically, tyranny, the people voting for tyrants, in other words, always happens out of the population centers. That's where the people go who are looking for subsidies and government uh, assistance and so on and so forth. And they tend to vote with their wallet and they vote for larger government. The rural areas tend to be more, uh, you know, work for themselves, individualistic and so on and so forth. So uh, Jefferson even, uh, said that he recommended that we were an agrarian society. If we eliminate the uh, Electoral College, even though it's been changed a little bit, it's still hanging on to that Republican form of government, we lose it. The largest cities will vote for president and nobody else's vote will matter. It's understand with the Electoral College, we don't have a single presidential election. What we have is 51 elections. And then each of those elections have a point system. It's sort of like watching the World Series. 
you know, let's say the, you know, uh, the, we'll, we'll go with Dodgers and Tampa Bay since this was the last one. Let's say the Dodgers win the first two, one to nothing and two to nothing. Tampa Bay then wins the third game, 23 to nothing. And then the Dodgers come back and win games uh, four and five, you know, one to nothing, two to nothing. The Dodgers win the World Series and Tampa Bay says, no, we scored more runs. Well, that's not how it works. I've never heard that analogy before. That's uh, yeah. Well, that's, that's not how it works, works, right? It's who wins the most games. Yeah. So, and and what and doing that allows all of America to matter. Doing it that way because the point system is designed so that the smaller states have a little bit bigger voice than they would in a national popular vote. And uh, and so suddenly states like Nevada matter, Georgia matters. In a nat- national popular vote, you know, uh, Houston, L.A., Chicago, and New York probably be enough to vote for president. Only one of them be enough if everybody was voting, you know, lefty. But uh, right. Right. You know, for the most part, the cities will vote for president and nobody else's vote will matter. And everybody will say, yeah, but democracy. You know, and I'll give you another real quick story to help you understand the importance of democracy audience here. Um and this is actually something that John Birch Society put out, but it's such a great example. I like to use it. Um, you have a, uh, a murderer, and the town puts together a posse of 50 guys. They chase the murderer down. They bring him back. They vote 49 to 1 to hang him, and they hang him. Democracy has won. However, in a republic, that same murderer takes off. The, the 50 members of the posse go chase him down. They come back. They vote 49 to 1 to hang him. And then the sheriff walks up and says, wait a second, boys. He has his rights. He has a right to a fair trial He has a, uh, with a jury of his peers. And even, with, and even then, it's not a majority. It requires a unanimous decision by that jury. That's a republic. Well, that is a, that is a, a profound way to look at it uh when you when you put it in contexts like what you have um you know i am someone who believes in the electoral college um that that it's that it's what we what we should pursue but when you when you when you put it in analogies like that it it really makes me feel like i'm on the right team like it's not just <laughs> like it's not just because um <clears throat> not just because uh, you know most of the people i know are are you know lean in that direction but it just seems like it's also the the morally right thing to do Right. Well, and also understand that the founding fathers, when they set up our system, and we call it the American experiment, and it was an experiment because it was unlike anything anybody had ever seen. It was designed to be as unlike Europe as possible. And that's why we have American exceptionalism. And I love it when the uh, Democrats out there say, oh, American exceptionalism, that's arrogance. No, 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 it's not about arrogance. Exceptional, not because we think we're better. Exceptional because we're the exception to the rule. We're different and unique, and for a reason, because it was designed to protect us against tyranny and to stand the test of time. Yeah. And and it really has, even with all the damage done to it, even with all of the attacks, we are still standing as the most prosperous and, and greatest nations on this planet, um, and we've been emulated. you got to understand, before the United States, uh, the last time anybody were citizens was during the Roman Republic or the Greek states. There were no citizens in Europe. They were all subjects. They were subjects of the king and the king's realm who owned all the land and let you borrow it. 
in America, you became a citizen who could own land, could participate in the in the free exchange of goods in the free market system, and have a voice in your system. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that was something that was unheard of, and and was expected to be doomed to fail because the people are just too dumb. They're not supposed to have any voice. Now, while the founders agreed to a point, well, if you give them all the power, yeah, we're in trouble. But they've got to have an important voice in that system. And they made sure that the consent of the governed, which the consent is through money, House of Representatives, going back to that, uh, power of the purse strings is the consent of the governed. Uh, And and by doing that, we created a system along with, uh, also with the states where they take care of their own business and the people take care of their own business within those states without central government interference and it flourished and and the people in Europe were shocked. Uh, You know, one of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Sigmund Freud. You may have heard of him, the father of psychology. And he said, yes, the United States is gigantic. It's a gigantic mistake. (laughs) That's interesting. I'm more of a Jungian myself, but, uh, but uh, I, I can, uh, I, I can appreciate that that take, I, I suppose, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean I yeah, agree. Side note, I actually have, have an aunt who passed away not too long ago who actually worked with Jung. But anyway. <laughs> oh, very cool. Very cool. Well, maybe can you run down in, in about 60 seconds? What What is the process for repealing it? You know, say say the the voice, you know, quote unquote, voice of the people reigns supreme and uh, they want the, say Washington hears them and they try to go for repealing the Electoral College. Yeah, they can do it one of two ways. Either they can have a, an amendment proposed to eliminate the uh, Electoral College. An amendment can be proposed either by a convention of states or by uh, the Congress. Uh, and then have the states, rat- three quarters of the states or more ratify to eliminate the Electoral College. Or they could do it state by state where the states basically say, whatever our electoral votes are, we are going to give them to whoever the national popular vote winner is. State can choose what to do with their electoral votes. You see that in the current system where Maine and Nebraska splits theirs up. It just seems like such a concession. It is. And it's, and it's the, like I said, uh, the last vestige of what we are as a republic. We lose the electoral college. We cease to be the United States of America. Let's, let's, let's hold on to that here for just a second. Ooh, I, I want to give Douglas an opportunity to uh, tell our listeners where they can find uh, his information, um, website, and then uh, there, there's a couple of books. He's he's written a number of them, but a couple of books that he's he's um, advocating right now um, that really, in a lot of ways, talk about what we're talking about today. Um, the Seven Worst Constitutional Liars and A Promise of American Liberty. So, Douglas, why don't you take a second, um, put in a, a quick plug for your your you know wherever you want your website, your radio show, whatever, and and your books, and and we'll we'll close this out in our typical manner. We'll we'll explain that to you here in a second. All right. Well, I blog at politicalpistachio.com. And if you ever have me on again, you ask me why political pistachio. It's an interesting story. Politicalpistachio.com. I have uh, been on Fox News five times, uh, One America News uh, twice, uh, Al Jazeera America back when it was around three times. Uh, uh, NPR actually came to my uh, my dining room to interview me in my in my house. Uh, so I'm active out there. People know who I am. I'm known uh, nationwide as uh, Mr. Constitution. Uh, 
I uh, host a radio program on AM radio every Saturday from 1 to 3 Pacific time on KMET 1490 AM, KMET1490AM.com. And I have written seven books. I'm going to mention a third one. The very, very first one, 25 Myths of the United States Constitution. We've been taught so wrong about the Constitution that I felt my first book should be to help you unlearn what we've been taught. Uh, my two most recent uh, seven worst constitutional liars actually gives you the chronological story through seven individuals in history, how we went from being a constitutional republic to the mess we are in today. And the last book, A Promise of American Liberty, is a very fat uh, thousand plus page book that is a textbook I use to teach government to homeschool kids, but the average person also uh, really enjoy it. I not only go through the Constitution, but also our history and our system and why the mechanisms are in place the way they are and the way the mechanisms used to be before all of the changes. Very good. Douglas, thank you so much. Tyler, do you want to do you want to get us started on uh, on the panic scale? Uh, I will. So, Douglas, we have a tradition on the show, and that is that at the end of our discussion, we have on a scale of one to ten, how big of a uh, reason do people have to panic based on the, the subject matter of the show. So uh, today we're talking specifically about the, the removal of the Electoral College, uh, reason to panic. So we'll start with our lawyer. Randall, let's go to you. Reason to panic, one to 10, where would you put removal of the Electoral College? Well, I, I want to say, well, I guess it's difficult to give it a number. You have to think through one thing real quick, because it seems to me, based on um, and I appreciate your answer uh, to my one question, Douglas. The uh, the fact that the Electoral College is already gone almost. Like, it's still a ref while it's a reflection of each individual state, it's still, um, the, the electors don't really vote. I mean, it's been so rare that they've actually voted for somebody other than uh, the person of their party that they're supposed to vote for. And so it seems like it's really just, it's it's very close to being gone. And because it's being gone, it's so close to being gone and because we're in this spot where if the majority is able to squeak out and get rid of it and then all of the agrarian states and all of the small pieces of land and property owners all over the country all of a sudden lose their vote vote and stuff um, lose their voice it it could have a very significant impact because the electoral college will go first and then you'll start seeing speech go and assembly and and those other first and second amendment rights not to mention you know the other rights that, that are later for things that the police can and can't do for searches and seizures so i, I just see it as being a bad thing and so i'm going to probably give it a 7.7 .7, maybe a 7.8 because it's 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 a big deal and and i give it such a high rating because we're so close to that actually being a reality um as compared to a black hole coming in and sucking us up we're, we're not anywhere near that <laughs> happening so so this is just a little bit more urgent <laughs> it is uh, Absolutely, Eli. Go ahead. What, where where would you put this one? Uh, for this, for this, I'm 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 right there with Randall. Uh, to me, it's I, I feel like there's writing on the wall, and I feel like uh, you know it's worth fighting. You know, to 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 keep this electoral college in place. That's just my personal opinion. I don't speak on behalf of the show, but um, I I I this is a panic moment. This is an eight for me. I'm just going to put it right at eight, eight point zero. Because it's something I'm constantly aware of. I'm listening to the narratives in, in the mainstream media, which, of course, are going to be bleak for someone who uh, advocates in favor of the Electoral College. So it's it's a little bit panic time right now. And, and, and until I see the, the momentum 
stop moving in the direction of repealing it, um, I'm going to continue to to panic at an at an 8.0 level. Okay, uh, Douglas, we'll, we'll we'll give you a, a crack at the uh, crack at the the bat here. Um, one to ten, the electoral col- college goes away. Where would you put this on uh, on a panic scale? Well, we lose the electoral college. We will ultimately lose our liberty, our constitution, and our country. And a black hole sucking us up would then be merciful. So I give it. <laughs> so I actually give it an eleven. Okay. Oh, that's our first eleven. It is. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm going to I'm going to drop a quote as well. Mine isn't quite as illustrious as Thomas Jefferson or Winston Churchill. Um, mine comes from uh, Tommy Lee Jones in uh, Men in Black. But he says this. He said, "A person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, and stupid. And so, for that reason, I would probably have to give this, uh, you know, a, a, a nine as well because." I think going back to something that, that Douglas mentioned earlier, a one-on-one conversation with a person and you're able to get them to recognize, you know what, this is why we're set up a certain way. This is why it's important. Uh, but once you start trying to talk to the masses and we're seeing it right now, uh, it's it's the mob following the mob. And I think that we are. We're on a very nasty, slippery slope with our, uh, with our freedoms. So yeah. um, I'm going to give Carlin, it a good night. George Carlin said, never underestimate the stupidity of people in large groups. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there it is. There is a, a, a more uh, uh, sound uh, quote for exactly the same thing I was trying to say. So thank you for that, Douglas. Uh, Douglas, thank you for joining us on the show this morning. Like I said, I, I know that um, you know we're, we're a, a more obscure segment than some of the places that you've been but we've definitely loved having you i I think i speak for my co-hosts would love to have you back on uh for another episode in the future so if you do every audience deserves the truth so i treat no audience different from any other audience and uh, your audience is just as important as any other audience um and i appreciate you having me on and i look forward to any uh opportunities in the future Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you for tuning in this week. Uh, Join us next week for another reason to panic. That's it for this show.